Welcome to Beat the Culture. I'm your host, Grace Walker, and each week we dive a little bit deeper into what's going on in the world and the culture, and we like to analyze it with a biblical perspective, aiming to educate and encourage you to think for yourself, and instead of following the culture, beat it. Beat the Culture. New episodes every Thursday. Hey, you guys, and welcome back to Beat the Culture with me, your host, Grace Walker. And today's episode has been highly requested. And when I say highly requested, I mean so highly requested, it's not even funny. It's been brought up to me by people in my personal life who want to see this guest, who want to hear this conversation. And I've gotten just so many of these questions um, via Instagram. And I'm just really looking forward to having these conversation. Essentially about just some some Christianity and theology questions um, that many believers have. And in fact, some of the questions that I got, I actually have myself um, being a newer believer. I've been saved for about a year now. Um, and so, of course, obviously, Every believer, no matter if you're seasoned or if you've just been saved yesterday, we have questions, right? And so today I just have the perfect guest to give us some answers. He's extremely credible and just a great source of information. So smart, in fact, that most of the time when he gives us an answer, we have to ask him to repeat it in a little bit of a slower pace. He likes to talk very fast, but it's our favorite thing about him. So... If you find yourself needing to listen to this episode in 0.3x speed, that's completely normal. If there was a button for that in real life, I am highly confident that we would be using it on him all the time. So without further ado, instead of me just going on and on about our guest, I'm going to let him introduce himself. So today we have special guest Chris Ike. Hey Grace, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so excited. And are, have you ever been on a podcast or any type of uh, appearance before? I'm curious. Uh, I bl- have blogged occasionally for uh, the FBC College Ministry, but I think this is my first uh, podcast. Wow, so that's so exciting. Well, it's we're, an honor. Yeah, we're honored to have you here. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about you and just kind of about some of your credibility? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm on staff for FBC's College Ministry. I've been there for a while, probably since it started, maybe a bit before. Uh, when I was came out of college, um, uh, before that I went to the Moody Bible Institute, and so I have a BA in international missions and a, I have and a minor in Greek. I went to seminary at the Masters Seminary and uh, spent a little bit of time doing missions in Albania. So I've you know I've been around a little bit. Oh yeah, just just a little. And everybody seems to call you the professor. Where did that come from? Yeah, so I'm not an actual professor, <laughs> but uh, I think I just have that personality. I am basically the library of knowledge that people consult uh, for random questions, which is good today because there's a lot of questions we have to answer. Right. Absolutely. So I'm ready to start getting into this. So let's go ahead and talk about some of the questions we got today. For those of you who do not follow my Instagram at this is Grace Walker, first of all, sad face, you totally should. Second of all, I did make an Instagram questionnaire poll thing on my story a few weeks ago to get these questions. So these are all from listeners and followers like you guys, which is super awesome. And I'm so thankful if you guys hear your question get answered on here, then yay. Awesome. And if it didn't get answered, then just keep asking and I guarantee we'll do as part two. So number one, kind of the umbrella topic for this is going to be some wisdom issues for, for gray areas in the Bible. Some things that people tend to have maybe different opinions on, or it's a little, um, less black and white, less clear, or maybe it's very clear, but just commonly misunderstood. And one of the questions we got, it was about drinking. So how do you feel about Christians and alcohol? The Bible talks quite a bit about drinking. And so on the one hand, I know that in some cultures and some churches, there's, you know, there's absolutely you know, no drinking at all. You can't be a Christian and drink like Russians, for example, you know, like if you're a Christian and a Russian, like there's no drinking at all. And then some cultures, like if you're in Europe, like you, how can you be a Christian and not drink? Uh, so like there's a wide variety of views um, in 
different countries and even different places in America. Um, but we're talking about the Bible, not culture. So the Bible has a lot of wisdom about drinking and a lot of caution. So on the one hand, I know that like wine, for example, is used as an imagery of joy and gladness and celebration in scripture. You know, there's a, a wedding feast with the good wine. If you remember uh, John chapter two, where Jesus made the good wine. And I don't think he made like really good drink grape juice, but like actual wine. <laughs> so I don't think it can be, I mean, assuming that Jesus drank at the wedding, uh, you know, it can't necessarily be a sin uh, to drink alcohol. And yet at the same time, scripture has a lot to say about the dangers of it. Yeah. So one thing that I hear a lot of people say is that, um, the reason that drinking can be considered a sin is for, I, there's a few reasons, but I believe, and I want you to clarify if I'm wrong, but the reason that we need to be of caution to drinking is because of how it affects our mental state and it takes us, it can change kind of the way that you act. It will take control of you when you're under the influence. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So if, if we describe it maybe in a more uh, positive way before we get to the negatives, okay. um, mm -hmm. like the scripture talks a lot about self-discipline and that being like a fruit of the spirit. So if you look at uh, lists of elders, for example, right? And elders are the people who are older in the faith, who are supposed to be an example to help lead other people. Um, not being given over to much wine is often there, um, along with self-control in a lot of different areas. You know, Ephesians 5.8 says that you shouldn't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the contrast there is between um, having wine control you, right? If you have ever had too much to drink or seen someone else who has, um, there's definitely a different way that you talk and act. Absolutely. Than, uh, than you would normally. Um, and the same, like, and that same thing that's true of wine is also true of the spirit. That when you're in the spirit, um, it influences the way that you think and act towards others. Mm. And one is a a very positive influence, and one is a very dangerous negative influence. Absolutely, I've never heard that contrast. It's very interesting that you that you bring that point up. I've never actually thought of it in that way, in the sense that the Holy Spirit it does obviously change your behaviors. Um, so that's a good thing versus kind of substituting that with something else like alcohol or. Um, I suppose you could also relate this to, to different types of drugs as well. Would you agree? I think so. I think drugs are a little bit more difficult. So, or even if you think about like hard liquor, uh, you know, like the, the more, uh, the more alcohol you have, the less you can have before it takes control. Right. Right. And I think, um, drugs are even more on that scale where if you have even a little bit the you lose control and the harder the drug, the more um, addiction comes into play and the yeah, more absolutely. dangerous it is. Yeah. Okay. So, so when it comes to, to Christians and drinking, um, do you believe that there's, it, that's going to kind of be something that's going to have to do with your own personal convictions, whether you decide to drink or not to drink? So there's uh, a few things to take into account. So there's definitely your own personal conviction. We're just at a wedding this weekend and there's a couple of guys that have a conviction that they don't ever drink at all. And I absolutely appreciate that. And a few right. other guys, mm -hmm. you know, um, didn't have that conviction and we were able to uh, interact so if, if it is like against your conscience, um, you should absolutely not do it. Uh, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians and then also in uh, Romans 14. Since God is your master and your, the conscience is the main way that you know whether you are trying to follow God or not, if uh, it reminds you, say, of your unsaved past, if you grew up in a bad family situation where drinking was an issue, you should, you should absolutely not break your conscience for the sake of drinking. It's not that good, honestly. <laughs> it's just not worth it. So the second thing to, to think about when drinking too is the people that you're around. So if you are around people who are younger in the faith, uh, who will see your drinking and, you know, associate that with the negative past, or even people who uh, come from a stricter background and automatically assume sin when they see drinking, I think that's a, because uh, you want them to see Christ. Uh, Paul talks about that in Rom Romans 14. It's not about like what I want and what I can do, but it's about 
me giving up my liberty for other people to love Christ more. Mm. So that I think is the controlling idea. If my eating or drinking causes someone to stumble, I'm not going to do it. That's a really good point. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that, that one up because it's very true. I mean, you and your family drinking may be one thing in comparison to you and, and a group of unbelievers or, or new believers. Absolutely. Because ultimately we want to be shining the light of Christ into our lives and hopefully influence them in that direction rather than in a negative direction. So moving on, another question that I received was, question it was just tattoos question mark (laughs) kind of wondering um where christians stand on the idea of getting a tattoo so i think this is kind of in that similar vein um the overriding idea is i want to pursue christ with everything i do so if i'm in a situation where people will stumble for some reason over you know something that i've put on my body like maybe i don't want to do that you know maybe christian culture in the 1950s would like see any tattoo as evil there is a verse uh, somewhere in leviticus i think it's 18 that talks about not decorating your skin for the dead and getting those tattoos but i think that is probably more of a question of doing things that are part of like other religions um, so don't get a you know don't don't get a non-christian tattoo you know like praise buddha or something that would be um, <laughs> a little bit um, controversial and so one thing that i've always personally just assumed why we may be against tattoos or some people may be against tattoos is because it could kind of be a form of idolatry. Have you heard that before? You Uh, haven't heard that before. Do you want me to explain? Yeah, please explain. (laughs) Okay. So for example, if you were to get, I don't know, a tattoo of Taylor Swift on your arm, it's almost like you're idolizing Taylor Swift, right? That's, that's just something that I've heard. I'm curious your thoughts on, on something like that. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily judge anyone's heart. Like you could really love Taylor Swift. I've seen people with like SpongeBob tattoos. I would say think really hard about what you want to have permanently on you. I mean, it is possible to get rid (laughs) of tattoos, but it hurts. I understand that Taylor (laughs) Swift was just a random example and you may not want Taylor Swift on your arm forever. (laughs) Yeah. There's some really obvious examples like don't get the tattoo, like the name of a girlfriend that you haven't like aren't about to marry. uh, Right. That could be terrible. (laughs) So the other thing too is a lot of times because I'm a little bit older, uh, some of the things that I thought were really awesome when I was 18, like things I would never forget and always want to remember are a little bit sad and awkward now and I don't necessarily like want to have them you know sad and awkward more than 10 years later so just be aware that that your opinions of things will change things that you thought were really cool might not be absolutely at the same time like um if you want to mark a time in your life like when you came to Christ I've seen um that would be awesome Uh, a saying that reminds you of a turning point in the faith I've seen people go on mission trips and get tattoos for example or even like evangelistically I've seen I've had a friend who got like hell on the bottom of his arm and heaven on the top with Christ as the bridge in the middle so that anytime people saw it and asked like, what is your tattoo? He had like an easy way to talk about the gospel. Like oh. those are all great ideas. Very unique. So now what you were saying about not necessarily wanting something 10 years later after you've gotten it, that's definitely advice that I feel like people give to people who are interested in getting a tattoo, but that's still technically, I guess, secular advice. Like you could be giving that to a believer or a non-believer. But when it comes specifically to to believing, um, obviously, like you just explained, it's fine. I mean, quote unquote, fine, of course, according to your conviction and things like that. But it's okay to get a tattoo resembling Christ, evangelism, the faith. What if someone just wanted to get a tattoo that they thought looked cool? Like something like that. Is there anything against that in the Bible? Or is there a reason why Christians would be against that? I personally don't have any problem with it. I mean, you can decorate your body in any way you choose, like as a way to glorify God. If you think the, you know, the design is cool, like go for it. Interesting. Well, that's very good to hear. So you wouldn't ever necessarily say that if um, someone's walking around decked out in tattoos, that that 
is any sort of um, negative aspect of their their faith. No, not not at all. Yeah, there's there is the wisdom though. Sometimes, like maybe if you're gonna go for like the crazy skull face tattoo because you think it's really cool, or I'm thinking of that, that same friend that got the, the heaven and hell tattoo. Um, sometimes you know tattoos are a bit of an addiction, not in like the real sense, but right, like, you right. get a few and you get a few more, and then you keep decorating until you run out of skin. Uh, that friend later on did have some problems getting a job, like if you're trying to be in retail or whatever. So just maybe think further down the line before you get like both sleeves, you know, and like the neck tattoo that you can't hide very well. Just, mm, you know, just general wisdom, but not. Uh, not scriptural by any means. All right. Well, moving on to another question that I received. So someone wanted to know kind of your thoughts on Christian music versus hymns and kind of just about music in general. So what are your thoughts on on modern Christian music and regular music? How should us as Christians listen to music and should we be cautious of any sort of music? Yeah. So sometimes people ask, like, should I only listen to hymns or can I listen to contemporary Christian music or like, does any music matter? So, um, I mean, again, like all these gray area things, the point is, uh, how can we love Christ most? Um, the Philippians 4, 8 verse that comes up all the time, which says, uh, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, whatever is excellent or worthy of praise, think on these things. And I think music is one of those things where it can be in the background so much that it brings certain states, um, states of mind, you know, into the forefront. Right, right. Right, so you can listen to a bunch of romantic music and then all of a sudden you want to go on a date. Or you can listen to, uh, like, hardcore while you're driving and then suddenly you have road rage. You know, you're not sure why, but it's right, just there. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Kind so, of the way it affects your mental your mental state. I've definitely felt that, actually. Like, listening to, <laughs> like, if I'm listening to, like, a super, like, you know, those, like, self-love songs, it can totally bring out some prideful aspects because, like, obviously that's just, what it's talking about and you start singing you're like oh I'm feeling myself wait a second that's a sin <laughs> so so definitely I felt that that personally <laughs> uh, yeah so if I mean if you're listening to a lot of songs to say about drinking and get tattoos or something uh, but in an unbiblical way right if you're not sorry for party rocking for example that can lead you into just being more susceptible to sin or just maybe thinking about worldly things right and so I mean if we're gonna talk about worldliness worldliness is uh, bad not because necessarily everything in the world is bad but because it's not directed towards Christ if you are habitually in that mode where you're you know not thinking about Christ uh, it's harder to be in the spirit to think about things like that so Christian music is one way um, you know I'm a great fan of theological rap was listening to some on the way over about the attributes of God I just got really excited about God's omniscience and omnipresence right, right which doesn't right. happen if I'm listening to a bunch of Taylor Swift albums as yes. much as I <laughs> like her and have the tattoo right it's just not the same not not the same at all so um, but genuinely scripturally there's not anything against secular music but ultimately you kind of just have to take it um, take it to where your personal heart is and make sure that if you're listening to music that it's glorifying to God, it's not adamantly against him and that it's not affecting your state of mind. Would you say that that's a good summary kind of of how to choose music? Yeah. I mean, you, you can filter stuff. Like, um, you know, there's, there's some music that is excellent um, that has bad lyrics and you can, depending on your own conviction, listen to that some, but don't let it dominate your mind, right? And try and put your focus primarily uh, on Christ. And if you want to go all the way to hymns, uh, you know, which have great deep theology, like by all means do it. I guess one other caution for Christian music too is uh, some of it has really weak theology and also bad music. Like it's just not great musically. So I don't know. I would almost rather listen to good music and just filter out like worldly stuff than filter out bad theology and listen to bad music. Right, uh, But that's right. up to your uh, your opinion for sure. Yeah, so maybe like a clean version of a, of a rap song versus <laughs> some eh, Christian rap <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, like a super Arminian song that has three chords, you know, in like a, a faux punk way. Like I just, that kills me every time I hear it. Oh, jeez. So, tragic, tragic. Yeah. Obviously the best thing to do is to listen to lots of podcasts where people talk about the Bible. 
yeah. uh, maybe like this one. So yeah. just listen to those. That's mostly what I do anyway. So. You know, slight flex, subtle, yeah. subtle quote. All right. So moving on into uh, something that personally for me is actually something that I struggle with trying to figure out and, and understand because it can, it's a little bit confusing and a bit of a paradox, one may say. Um, but can, can you kind of explain to me what is a healthy fear of God? What does that look like in a Christian? Proverbs starts with the, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, right? And so if you want to mm-hmm. be wise, like you need to fear God. All over the Psalms, it talks about fearing the Lord. There's maybe a little balance in this too. So on the one hand, fearing doesn't necessarily mean being utterly afraid of God, although it could. I'm probably stealing this from John Piper, but I, I think about it like if you were to drive to the Grand Canyon and you stood on the edge, maybe like you're leaning against a fence. You should have a healthy fear of the edge of the Grand Canyon lest you fall in and die. Right. right? Like there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's like a healthy I mean, caution yes, there. Yeah. I mean, he can help keep you safe by having that caution. Is that kind of what you're, you're hinting at? Yeah. But, but the bigger thing is that like, when you go to the Grand Canyon, you see like the bigness of it and the awesomeness of it. Right. And you like, you can in, you know, the Grand Canyon is basically a big hole in the ground. And yet you can see like God's awesomeness through the things that he has made. Correct. Right. And you get that feeling that you ought to have for God, but that's harder to see, you know, if you're not actually the Grand Canyon. Um, John Piper does say that like, anyone that goes to the Grand Canyon never talks about how great they are. Right, but you right. are in <laughs> awe of the thing that is around you because it's so much bigger and more beautiful, um, probably than you are. Yeah, no one, no one goes to the Grand Canyon and thinks about how great they are. Right, they think about something outside of themselves. Right, or if you look up at the starry sky, you think, man, isn't God amazing for having created all of those things? Right, giant balls of fire millions of miles away, like nuclear, you know, like spinning around the whole universe, like, and you 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 feel small in comparison, um, and that is what the fear of the Lord is. It's looking at His greatness, and then respecting that. And, you know, if you are in sin or, you know, raising your hand up against him uh, because you hate him, like there is a, a terror that should follow that fear of the Lord because you've made that great God your enemy. But mm. on the other hand, um, if you are someone who has believed in Christ and been saved through what he has done, you are like now saved from the wrath of God. And you are someone whom that God who has all that power, like whom he loves and cares for. And so I think that's part of the fear of God too, knowing that he's in control of everything and that you trust him. Absolutely. And I think this totally reminds me, we just listened to a sermon on Sunday about, um, you know, the paradox of the fear, not the fear, sorry, the God's love and God's wrath. And for those of you who heard this and we're getting a little confused on that, I'll link it in the show notes just because that is also very eye-opening of a message, at least for me, and kind of understanding that balance and that understanding of of being able to, to both... Um, trust in his love, but also understand that with his love comes his wrath. I mean, you can't go, I can't go at least one podcast without quoting C.S. Lewis. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, you know, there's the, the character Aslan who represents Christ. Uh, the little girl Lucy says, you know, is he safe? And then uh, the response that she gets is he's not safe, but he's good. I think that's how we should think of God. Mm. Not that, you know, he's not dangerous because he is if you um, are his enemy, but he is good to his children. And that's what the fear of God is. I love that. So another question I got is a question about the assurance of salvation. So the question specifically was, if I remember getting saved, but I haven't lived for Jesus since, is my salvation truly secured? And um, this one seems like a tough question, at least for me to answer, which is great because you're here to answer it. So why don't you go ahead and explain your, your thoughts on this? So I guess the first question is, what is salvation? And how do you get it? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think one of the things uh, that this question could assume, I don't necessarily know the heart of the person who did it. So I'm not trying to judge at all. Sometimes we look externally about salvation. We think like, you know, the person like, you know, signed the card, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, and then therefore they are, are saved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is, you know, some of those things can be good as an appropriate, like, outward expression, but there's also an internal change that happens, right? And I believe like, that that internal change happens before um, you can actually ex- express um, externally. So 
like internally what happens is you have gotten a new heart, right? And um, Ezekiel 36 says, I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And they, you, they will all know me, talking about God's people from the least to the greatest. John, in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he talks about how the spirit blows on whom he wishes. You can't always tell uh, where the wind is going to go, but you can see its effects. And the same is true of someone who has really been changed by Christ, that you can see the effects of the, their changed heart in their life. So there's the internal objective thing, right? So the, the real real thing is that the, God has worked in your heart in some way and you have been changed. And I think once you have been changed, um, you are truly secure because it's a work that God has done for you. And yet at the same time, there should be external evidence, right? Uh, James talks about this a lot. He talks about whether your faith is justified. You can say that you believe, but if you don't ever act like it, like, do you really believe? Do you really believe? If you get caught up in the, the swell of the band and feel bad about sin, um, and then maybe say some words because you're afraid of God's judgment, which you, you should be, um, maybe not to have been truly saved. Right. And it, what's interesting too is uh, along with salvation comes sanctification. And through sanctification, you're becoming more and more Christ-like. So if someone claims to have been saved, the sanctification process should then begin. Would that be correct? Not only like should it begin, it, it must begin. Like part, part of what it means to be made alive in Christ is that you now learn to hate sin and love God. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Our pastor Chris Mueller is fond of saying there has to be fruit somewhere, even if it's you know a little apple you know that's shriveled under like a bunch of leaves. Like there is fruit growing somewhere uh, if you have really been saved. Right. Uh huh. So you would you would question um, if you claim to be saved, but you don't want to live like Jesus, be like Jesus, grow in your faith. You would. I I would I mean question my own salvation if that were me and I would probably question it if I understood someone else's heart. So I, I mean that's just a kind of a red flag to me by throwing that in there into the question what do you think um yeah absolutely so i guess one of the other things that kind of goes with this too so we can talk about like eternal security and assurance of faith and okay. those things mm -hmm. uh, go hand in hand but they're a little bit different so eternal security is what god does for us you know it's uh when jesus says like um all whom the father has given to me will come to me and i will not by any means lose any of them right so on, in that sense because jesus is in charge and we can trust that he's going to do what he's going to do because he's god and because god has given you know god has made a plan and given them to him that god he will keep all of his own so there's the thing that god does and that's what it means to be eternally secure all whom god has saved he will make sure they get to the end romans 8 those whom he called he justified those whom he justified he also glorified you know there's that golden chain so you know once you're elect you're elected called justified glorified like there's no break in the chain there's nobody that you know misses one bucket and, like you know falls out from right. one, one mm -hmm. category to the next um, so that's the thing that God does. He doesn't lose anyone. On the other hand, there is assurance of faith, which is your internal subjective feeling of, am I saved or not? What often changes is that if you are in a pattern of sin, you don't feel as if you are saved, right? And part of that is the Holy Spirit convicting you to say like, saved people don't do this. Like, this is not good. Like, you should not continue in this way. And if you are really saved, at some point, you will repent because God, you know, that's part of what the Holy Spirit does. He will make you change. You know, even if he has to break your hand to cause you to let go of the idol that you're holding on to and make you feel terrible, <laughs> terrible, so you do repent. At some point, the saved person will repent. But like the Puritans are fond of saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And so if you aren't saved, you can continue on in sin and love it. And there will be no more repentance left. Like you've heard the good news and you don't like it, like Romans 10 says. And so therefore there's nothing left. So I don't want people to take this the wrong way in case they do. Once you're saved, you're still going to sin. The sin is not going to end. It's going to be how you choose then to deal with the sin and how you choose to repent. Uh, absolutely. I feel bad for not quoting scripture, but I'll quote Martin Luther instead. instead. <laughs> uh, the first one of his uh, 95 thesis was, we know this to be true. That all of life is repentance. Yeah, even Paul, when he wrote Romans 7, like towards the end of his ministry, he was talking about himself, about still having to fight sin and its uh, control over him. So all of all of life is repentance. There's no, no person who doesn't sin, even, you know, on their last day that they're alive. And yet at the same time, um, there is real growth towards godliness, right? You can see com sin coming from further away. You 
um, are tempted by it far less. You repent far sooner. Things that used to used to have an allure when you were a new Christian are now disgusting. You know, once you have seen their effects and repented of them several times, like there there is real growth that happens for every real believer, um, and that's where like real assurance comes from. So yeah. So if, if you are thinking about killing sin, and, and um, can I just recommend um, John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin? It's a little bit harder. You know, there's a, a bridged version in more modern English. If you know, if you need something a little bit easier. But one of the things he says, uh, we'll call this, you know, it's uh, his chapter four, I think, is that all of the goodness and enjoyment of the Christian life comes from um, killing sin. So if you are thinking like, maybe I'm not even a believer and like Christ isn't even that good. It might be that you're stuck in a pattern of sin. So you can't feel the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Like you feel like God is far away because sin is there, like getting in the way. He, he, he puts in the analogy of uh, like on a cloudy day. Right, how all like you can see like the flowers droop, like because the, the cloud is in the way of the sun. Mm, but as soon as those right. clouds break, you can you know, you can uh, see like the sun's beams shine down. And the same thing is um, true of God's goodness. That as you fight sin in your life, you'll like begin to feel that uh, goodness from God again. Like you know, as you start to repent, so do it. Absolutely. Well, that was a really good explanation. I'm very, very fond of that. And I think that that's going to be very eye-opening and helpful to um, members of the audience who may have been having that question, am I saved? Is it secured? Um, That's a great summary and explanation of that. And so our final question today is actually a personal question that I had on my own because when I was reading in 1 Corinthians, I was just confused a little bit because I read 1 Corinthians 11, um, which Chris can go ahead and read to you in a second when I'm done answering this question. But um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is basically talking about um, kind of the necessity for a woman uh, and head coverings and men not to wear head coverings, um, especially in place of worship, I believe. And that was so confusing to me because when I read that, it seems like Paul was speaking directly to me. And I was like, um, no females at my church wear head coverings. That's not a thing to my knowledge in Christianity and the way that I read it it seemed so direct and so like well duh that I was like there's no way there's this many Christians who just blatantly ignore scripture so how do I know that that doesn't apply to me so can you explain a little bit um in the epistles when Paul is talking specifically to um in Corinthians the church of Corinth how do we know that it's specifically to the church of Corinth and and kind of just talk about this passage a bit Uh, first Corinthians 11 verse 1 I'm going to read out of the ESV. It says, uh, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same for her as if her head was shaved. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she, will, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, then let her cover her head. Mm-hmm. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears his hair long, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do any of the churches of God. Uh, And that's the end. And he goes on to the Lord's Supper. Okay, great. So, I mean, 
you reading that to me, I'm still a little confused. So I'm so glad that we're asking this. <laughs> so why don't you um, just go ahead and explain um, how that may not be applicable today to me reading this. <laughs> to you in particular. So just a little bit of, of background as we get into 1 Corinthians. The church of Corinth was one of Paul's um, earliest churches. Uh, it's also a church made up primarily of Gentiles. So you can think of people who have never been to church before, right? Who don't, who have just heard the gospel and there's a bunch of new people who are asking lots of questions. And so um, in their first letter, they've written to him and he's just kind of going through question by question, answering um, different questions and um, ad- addressing issues that are in the church. So, you know, he'll go from like how to take communion to um, the head covering issue. He's going to talk about um, singleness and marriage and whether or not you should sue each other. Like it's just a whole bunch of different things. So uh, this is one of those questions. So there is like a very specific issue going on in the church that he's dealing with. So that's the first thing you need to know is that he is talking to a specific situation, uh, although he's bringing in general principles. Um, The second thing is, I think this is maybe uh, the most important thing, is he does talk about uh, marriage and submission, um, which we can talk about briefly. This probably deserves its own podcast, and there are, I'm sure, many good ones on it. But in uh, verse 3, he talks about how the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so if, I guess if we want to go um, in, in reverse order. So there's God the Father, who is the head over everything. And then there's Christ the Son, who um, you know, is equal in honor and glory with the Father, and yet submits to him. It's his role. It's not that he's worth any less, but um, because he loves the Father, like he demonstrates submission by doing everything the Father tells him to do. Um, and then um, loving the Father back, you know, but in submission. In the same way the Father plans and leads and sends the Son and um, shows his love in that way. And so, you know, they have loved each other in that way forever. And the great thing is that marriage is a picture of that um, leadership and submission that exists in the Trinity itself. All right, so when God made man and woman in marriage, the husband takes on the role of the father. The wife takes on the role of the son that exists in the Trinity. So the, the man is meant to lead and the wife is meant to submit in the same way that the, the man was submitted to Christ, who then submits to God. Um, I was reading a book by Michael Reeves recently, and he called it uh, a cascade of love and submission submission like a love that is directed in a certain way and so that's kind of what is at the heart of this is that you have um this great picture of love in the trinity that god instantiated in marriage and now in the corinthian church you have a bunch um women who don't like this idea and so they would prefer that they had the leadership position and their husbands would submit to them or um at the very least um they're the sort of women who don't need no man to tell them what to do they are very independent uh, and the way that you can see this is because they're either taking off head coverings or shaving their head. So in this culture, but maybe not in ours, uh, yeah, mar- married women wear head coverings, right? It's the same thing you see in India all the time. Um, you know, there's a different way that you dress uh, in, in a lot of cultures, right? When you're, whether you're married or you're single. Um, also, uh, when he talks about shaving your head, uh, this was a thing that um, prostitutes would do in Corinth. And Corinth was known where sex and religion were kind of intermingled. Uh, it was pretty big there. And so if you were a temple prostitute, you would shave your head. And so that, when you see that comparison of if you're not going you know, to submit to a man, you might as well um, <laughs> shave your head. Uh, that, I think, is what he's talking about. So it's all about symbols of authority is what we're trying to say. So um, when the wife takes off the head covering, she is saying, I am no longer under my husband's authority. I'm going to do what I want. Um, and maybe he, he can listen to me. And so I think that's the biggest thing. I think that's also why Paul brings up angels. Uh, this is a little bit of my own conjecture. Uh, but uh, Peter talks about salvation as something into which angels long to look. Um, because salvation is not something angels have, right? So the, the only way that they know that God is loving and forgiving um, and that he can save people from sin is by looking at what he's doing with humanity since, you know, for angels to sin once is to um, be judged and become a demon. So, um, sorry, this is all a little bit of speculation. But because God has demonstrated um, his love uniquely in marriage, um, 
that these people are not only affecting, you know, the, 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 um, or these women are not only affecting their husbands by not submitting, or even the church around them, or even like the world around them. But there are other, like all of the parts of God's creation, including the angels, are meant to see um, how love and submission look in marriage. And um, this thing that seems so small, right? Um, this little bit of selfishness uh, is big. So, so, so for your question, should I wear a head covering now? Well, you're not married, um, and even if you were, I think our culture doesn't have that cultural symbol of submission, except for maybe the wedding ring. So if you were the mm. kind of person that took off your wedding ring in church for some reason, because you didn't want people to think that you were married, I think that might be a clue. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy as well. So the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is I don't think so. So even, even later, he talks about how when God created man and woman that uh, her hair acts as a covering or, um, or a, oh. a demonstration for submission. So there's, there's the natural symbol, uh, that's the hair. There's the cultural symbol that is the piece of cloth that she wears on her head, right? And there's the principle, which is that a wife should submit to her husband. And so I think in our culture, like maybe how you do your hair matters, but it, it's probably more in how you act um, than in what you wear. Right, because ultimately it all goes back to your heart motive and following the word of God. Yeah, but if you have a symbol that you want to wear that shows that you're in submission to your husband, by all means, you should do it and we'll make it a thing. Well, I hope you guys loved today's episode um, with our guest, Chris Ike. I know that the theology questions can just go on for hours and hours, days and days upon end. And that's why we got a lot more than just those few that we have saved for another time, another episode. But if you guys want to hear another episode, uh, make sure to like, subscribe, follow on all the platforms and check out our website, beattheculture.com. And we'll absolutely have Chris back for another episode sooner or later to answer more questions you guys may have. And feel free to follow on Instagram at this is Grace Walker to ask more questions and we would just love to hear from you guys and if you guys have any questions regarding the questions we already asked feel free to ask those too look forward to seeing you guys next week new episodes every Thursday thanks again for listening to another episode of Beat the Culture I'm your host Grace Walker and make sure to check out our Instagram at Beat the Culture and make sure to check out our website too BeatTheCulture.com for more information on what our brand is what we're doing new blog posts and updates See you guys again next week on Beat the Culture. Is that how you say it? Hymns? Hymns. Hymns. Yeah. Just hymns. Hymns. Like, like, like hers, but the opposite hymns. Yeah.